pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, a.k.a. Menners. And joining me for this edition of the show, I have my old friend James McSmith. How are you, Macca? Great, Menners. It's a pleasure to be here, mate. Now, we're welcoming one of your former colleagues now, who is now the chief cricket writer for the Daily Telegraph. Welcome to the show, Ben Horn. How are you? Great to be here, guys. Thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, you must Thanks be, for coming, you, Benny. You must be enjoying a new job without Macca. It's obviously... <laughs> a, although he's followed you across now. You're in the same building. We are. We're, we're, hard we're, to escape. We're yeah. colleagues again, man. Are you on seek already, Horny, looking for a new, <laughs> a new place of employment? Oh, I'm a bit uh, more tactful about it than that. But um, I haven't seen you around the hallways yet, probably because I'm never there. But, uh, <laughs> You're always you on tour with the Australian side. So you've followed the team all summer. How many summers have you done that for now? Uh, well, this is I've done three summers now for the Telegraph and a few more before that. So the first cricket tour that I covered was 2011 in South Africa, uh, which was Pat Cummins' debut and uh, when Australia were bowled out for 47. So it was a two-test series, but there was plenty happening. And yeah, so I've pretty much done every summer since then. So you have an intimate knowledge of the Australian cricket team that we could pass on to the listeners. We've also caught you before you head off to India, so thanks for coming in. Yeah, not a problem. It's an exciting time for Australian cricket. I mean, this has been pretty up, up there, really, with the most interesting summers I've covered, I think, with the complete transformation of the team. And, you know, there's always a lot of intrigue before they go to India. It's such a different place to play cricket, and it's the biggest challenge that an Australian team faces. So, yeah, it's an interesting time. Yeah, big summer we've just had. Highs and lows, notably lows. Um, but let, before we get on, there was a big high for the Australian Cricket Podcast this week. I think, Macca, we had our first ever exclusive story for the podcast when James Buckley from the Sydney Morning Herald broke the story that Madison is taking a break from cricket on the show. Well, man, is that was a great little yarn, but I think you're selling yourself short. I think you've had a, more than a couple of good breaking stories, mate. Uh, but I think this, that was the first real news story. So... Ben, as you're from a competing paper, do you have any uh, breaking stories you would just want to drop on the show? <laughs> Before I tonight? I, did. I wish <laughs> I did, but no. Um, pretty quiet. I've actually been enjoying a couple of weeks off, but uh, I'll be at the SCG later, so maybe something So just happen. phone something in. If you get yeah. any stories, phone something well, in. Well, man, of course, the interesting thing is it's completely blown up since then in light of Ed Cowan's sort of mental health and welfare comments, hasn't it? So. Well, so, and that's what I wanted to touch on. So Mad- Nick Maddinson is taking a break from cricket as we broke on this podcast. And Ed Cowan said yesterday in a press conference that he thinks more needs to be done for the mental welfare of these young players that are sort of thrown into the system and then spat out. And he he gave an analogy of when you're dropped, it feels like you're left at the station and the train keeps going. I guess, Ben, you've been around the team. Do you think Cowan's comments have some merit? Yeah, I think so. I mean, in terms of Nick Maddinson's actual situation, I mean, I think he has been very well supported, actually, by Cricket New South Wales and Cricket Australia. You know, they've talked through the process and there's a psychologist that works with him and and, uh, development managers that work out a program for him. So I think he's been uh, looked after well with with um, you know the, the break that he's taken at the moment. But yeah, look, I think in general, I mean, you can imagine being in that intense spotlight of the Australian team where you're on TV all the time, you're in the papers all the time, and then all of a sudden you, you're dropped and, uh, and it's over. So it's a big kind of change in, in, in an athlete's life, I suppose. I mean, the difference between domestic cricket and international cricket is massive. So, it's a bit like a circus, isn't it? Travelling around the country, you've got whole mm-hmm. support staff, media... 
all the attention, the cameras, the focus, and then you're sort of left behind, and that keeps going, and you're sort of left to pick up the pieces. Yeah, that's right. And look, I think um, there's been a, a few players recently, I think, that have spoken about how perhaps when they do drop out of the team and when they're on the outer, perhaps they don't get that feedback that they would like about where they're at, why they've been dropped perhaps or, or why they haven't been called back in. So, And I mean, I guess there's a lot of players playing in Australia, so the selectors can't be giving everybody a running update of how they're going. But um, yeah, look, I think there is a sense from players who drop out of the team that you know it's a bit of a lonely place to be. Benny, I guess what I'm wondering, mate, is that you're Nick Madison and you've kind of you've had this great opportunity that you've worked so hard for all your life and you haven't made the most of it, you know, and then it's been and gone and he's probably feeling, I've lost it, you know, I've, I've muffed it. Um, do you think that's sort of playing a role? He thinks he's never going to get back. He's sort of, it's all over for him? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what what's um, what's going on, but I think that, you know, it was clear during the Big Bash perhaps that he just wasn't um, the same cricketer that we've seen. I mean, Nick Madison would normally be dominating the big bash so uh look i think it got to a point where and i don't know exactly what aspect of it was um you know was bearing him down but um i think lots he just of realized confidence he needed a break. really seemed to come through mm. in the big bash he just looked all at sea and yeah i think he'll be back i mean he's 25 though you know a lot of people were surprised about his selection in the test team and that was probably more because to that point you know, he perhaps hadn't put the performances there that you'd normally see warrant test selection, but there's no doubt he's got potential. I've seen him play a couple of amazing innings. Um, there's one 2013 in England when he was on the Australia A tour. I've never seen anyone blitz a, a game like he, he did there. And um, so I think we'll see him again in, in test cricket, but might be a couple of years. Sad for him that he's going through a tough time, so wish him all the Man, best. I think we probably also mentioned that Ed, has Ed Cowan got a bit of an axe to grind here? I mean, he's obviously been through it himself, so he's more than credentialed to speak on it. I don't, I don't know if he's got such an axe to grind, but do you think he's got a bit of a thorn in his side about how he was treated too? I think it's a general okay. pervading feeling, and we saw Cameron White speak out against the selectors, now Ed Cowan, that senior players who feel that the selection's gone awry and with selections, want to speak up and, and you know, have their voice heard. And Cowan just adds his name to that list. So in this episode of the show, we've got a lot to get through. We're going to go through some proposed changes to international cricket. We're going to get Ben's preview of the Indian tour. We're going to wrap it all up with a chat about the T20 series coming up. But first, first thing, let's stick the boot into England. Their captain has quit. I'm and, surprised it took you so long, mate. <laughs> I think it's so strange. It's so un-Australian for us to give up the test captaincy, isn't it? I, I just can't sort of reconcile that. Pont, I know Ponting did it, but it's so Kim rare. Kim Hughes did it too, yeah. But for an Austra- you know, the English captain to just give it up, what do you guys think? In some ways, I'm surprised he lasted as long as he did, actually, because the pressure that's been put on him after certain losses that England has had has been massive. And I, I got the feeling that, he was, in a way, a bit of a reluctant captain. I mean, I think if there was someone else that was really busting down the gate to take over that job, he would have happily given it up. So I actually think for Australia, it's it's a bit of a warning sign because I think Alistair Cook might be more dangerous player at this stage of his career without that extra burden on him. And I think he will still come here for the Ashes next year. So, look, in some ways, I think England were, you know, needed a change like that. And, you know, I think he was always a little bit of a reluctant captain. Do you think 
this change makes England a tougher proposition when they come out for the Ashes or a, an easier proposition? Because you take away an experienced captain like Cook, who's been here before, seen it, done it, and now you're putting in someone like Joe Root, potentially could be captain, never skippered on an Ashes tour overseas. So it could work for us, or as you're saying, Bennett, could work against us. Cook's going to start scoring runs. Root will invigorate the side. So what do you guys think? Which way will it go? Well, I guess, um, James, no one knows how uh, how Joe Root's going to go as a captain, so that's the great unknown. <laughs> he might uh, he might be a flop. But, uh, look, I, I think if you just look at Alistair Cook, I think it will help him. I reckon that he's 31 or something like that. Probably coming to the end of his career, I think, releasing himself of that burden. He's not a guy with an ego, so he'll, he'll be able to fit into the mould of someone else captaining him. Well, man, I guess that's what you were pointing to, mate, about how does the dynamic within the team now come together if Joe Root's captain, Cook's no longer the leader. But I guess if Ben's right, then it, it doesn't disrupt that and it might be a good thing for England. But I, I don't know. I mean, that's been the problem with India over time, haven't it, when they've lost a captain, that there's been those ego clashes and, and that the dynamic of the team hasn't been able to come back together. But they've got a long... They've got a year to do that give or take before the Ashes, don't they? Yeah, there's not many players who could go from being captain to take a back seat, but I think Alistair Cook's probably one where he's just pretty mild-mannered. I don't think he'd be getting any in anyone's way. I guess one question is, we've seen this modern generation of batsmen ascend to the captaincy. Virat Kohli, Steve Smith, Kane Williamson, they've all been very successful. Now it's Joe Root's turn. Can he match their success? Or will he be more of a Sachin Tendulkar who couldn't cope with the captaincy? One thing we know about Joe Root from one of our uh, emails this week from Lockie, great email. He told that his now wife actually kissed Joe Root in his younger days when he was visiting Adelaide, and he didn't call his now wife back at the time. So, um, well, man, as I got to say, it's a blessing in disguise. I mean, she could be Mrs. Root, couldn't she? By now, so <laughs> that's a good one. All right. So before we go on, I just want to remind all the listeners: if you've got a moment, if you can go and vote for the show on the Castaway Podcast Awards, the link to the awards is on our social media pages, and um, just it's the Castaway Podcast Award. You have to sign up to vote for the popular vote, but please go in and do that. It'd be a big help. Now, there's been a big week of changes proposed from the ICC. Let's start with the long-awaited Test League. The proposal involves a two-tier Test League with the top nine Test-playing nations playing each other over a two-year period and the top two teams clashing in a final. In each two-year period, they would swap home-and-away series so Australia's traditional four-year cycle of, say, Ashes and Indian series wouldn't change. And they're proposing a two-tier league of... Nine and three, where the bottom three of Ireland, Afghanistan and Zimbabwe all play each other and the top nine play each other in a league. So that's changed a bit from the seven and five tier structure that they proposed last year, where it was going to be a top seven and a bottom five. What do you guys think about this proposal? I like it. Uh, I think Test Cricket needs this kind of injection. I mean, it's all fine when we play England, when we play India, when we play South Africa, but you really do worry about those series outside of that and just how much relevance they have in the big picture. So I think uh, any way of giving every series of Test cricket that's played more meaning and more context can only be a good thing. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it all comes together, but as long as it doesn't take away from what the Ashes means and what Touring India means, you know, I I think it's the only way forward for Test cricket. 
Ben, I just wonder, mate, that how are they going to put it together? How are the points system going to work? Because you don't want a situation where what's well, kind of just happened with the one day one day rankings. We lose a three test series to New Zealand, where only two games were played, and we lose the number one ranking. And if you know, say we've beaten England in England, but then we might lose a test to say Bangladesh in Bangladesh, and that prevents us from playing in the final. And Australia might have dominated cricket for all those two years. I mean, that's my mm. problem that. Yeah. How do you work it out? Yeah, I mean, all those details haven't been confirmed yet, have they? But I think, yeah, the ICC formulation of points is a complete mystery. <laughs> and much That's like it. it is, I suppose, in tennis and mm-hmm. things like that. But I agree. It would have to be more results-based because, yeah, sometimes it's just mystifying. I mean, you've had Australia well, that's it, mate. Yeah. in one-day cricket who have won a World Cup, don't really seem to have lost that many series, and all of a sudden they're on the brink of losing, a ra- losing their top ranking. Well, I guess I want to add to this that there's no guarantees this is going to happen. I'm doubtful whether this will get over the line, but it certainly has more chance of the seven and five system because when you had that bottom group of five, you are already alienating two test-playing nations. This has the benefit that the top nine nations effectively stay the same. It doesn't do a lot for those bottom three teams, though, does it? Because then they're effectively locked out of the top nine and they haven't built in anything to sort of uh, move up the the ladder and maybe go up into the top tier. So there's certainly some teething problems there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the big problems for cricket, I suppose, that there is quite a big gap. Like, I think Bangladesh has closed that gap a bit, and I think in five to ten years we might see uh, Bangladesh as as a very strong cricket nation. Um, You know, a lot of good judges say that the talent that they've got at their disposal, um, you know, the more international cricket they play, so the more that these guys are exposed to the highest level, I think they'll be a danger. But, you know, look, teams like Zimbabwe uh, are a long way away from from that. So it's hard hard to know what to do with them at this stage, but perhaps... In years to come, those decisions can start to be made where, you know, there can be a relegation system. Well, fingers crossed something happens. Because as you said, Test Cricket needs context. This is one step down the road. Well, man, I think that's it. I think it has to happen for Test Cricket to stay relevant, to keep on Well, that's what Dave Richardson said. Yeah, but he hasn't done anything about it, has he? He said that for a while now. And well, it's not about him. It's about the actual voting process. It gets to it's the... It's about what the BCCI want to do, you mean? Exactly. Yeah. Now, for the proposals in one day international cricket this is a different proposal than we've heard before they are proposing a 13 team league played over three years to determine world cup qualification the proposal involves a minimum of 12 odis per team per year this one for me seems to have more problems in the test league because will it alienate smaller nations from the world cup how exactly will you tie these games into the champions trophy how many teams qualify for the world cup if you've got 10 teams going to the world cup then are you playing three years of competition to eliminate three teams what do you think i agree i don't really see how this one's going to get off the ground or or really hit the mark because nothing changes the fact that the world cup is the one thing that really matters in one-day cricket. And so I just don't see how this will work, and and it seems confusing to me. I don't really see what it's going to achieve because we already know uh, the teams that are going to qualify for a World Cup. Um, you know, maybe at the very bottom scale, we don't know those last one or two places, but I don't think this is going to solve many problems for one-day cricket. That's it. I mean, it's obviously not like soccer, is it? It just seems a bit pointless. 
No. Yeah, I think if you wanted to establish a league that was independent of the World Cup and somehow tie that into the Champions Trophy, maybe that's a way or an independent league altogether and you can have be a league champion and the cup champion. Something like that might work. But yeah, I think that one's a lot further away from a, a good concept than the test one. It shows that, you know, it's a real puzzle, isn't it, one day cricket, how to actually get that right. Because, you know, when the World Cup was here uh, two years ago, it was great fantastic but outside of the world cup there's so many one day series that you know pass you by and you know two days later you might not remember who won now the third proposal by the icc and i want you to cast your mind back listeners to the fast that was napier in new zealand where the match was called off for a wet outfield and poor conditions now there is a proposal by the icc for the match referee to rate the curators and the venue on a points-based system and to make that public so if the match referee doesn't think a ground is pulling its weight it can give a, a rating and if you lose a certain amount of points over a period then you can be stripped of international cricket i really like this idea in principle yeah i mean i suppose we're just not used to this in australia at all because all the grounds are up to up to scratch but yeah overseas i guess it is an issue i mean You'd think the New Zealand Cricket Board would have uh, seen the red flags there with with Napier. Uh, So I'm not sure whether it has to be up to the ICC. I mean, I think there's probably some people at a more local level that can work out which grounds are appropriate. But I suppose... Don't you think there needs to be an independent sort of somebody assessing grounds around the world? Mm. Yeah, I guess so. And I think there's other things that really require that independent... Uh, voice the the number one for me would be the medical side of things like it's a complete joke that the ICC still doesn't have a medical policy to um, you know in, with issues like concussion Pakistan um, weren't even touring with the doctor last no time. and which is you know some teams can't afford to take one but in that situation the ICC should have someone there who can be an independent doctor because I mean this is test cricket I mean it's not like uh, we're playing in the park and yeah, it's just a silly situation where after the, you know, and I know uh, Philip Hughes' tragedy wasn't surrounding concussion, but it did draw attention to the risks of head injuries in cricket. And uh, when you look at other sports and the advancements that have been made with concussion, cricket is a long way behind. So for me, that's that's a bigger issue for the ICC in terms of having an independent. Well, um, I wonder if this sort of ground, and that's a great point, I wonder if the ground rating, though, all this stuff will come into it. The match referee will look at the facilities, the nets. Uh, another point that was made was what will be the standard of assessing pitches? If you turn up to, say, a wicket in India that's an absolute raging turner from the first day, the match referee might think, if he's Australian, oh, this is not a, a great wicket. But actually, if you're an Indian, you might think this is a perfect wicket. So I guess where will we assess the conditions? Yeah, that's a fine line, isn't it? Because we can't have cricket being played on unplayable wickets or surfaces but you don't want to lose the home advantage or the challenge of going overseas so we want to encourage curators to make wickets that um you know that are i suppose true to the conditions and true to the country that's been the problem in australia for too long now that most of the wickets are becoming too much the same um and at the moment i think the gabba is really the only good wicket in australia and the rest have really come down so look i i that's a it's a fine line from in my opinion and uh you know there's there would be countries though where conditions in the outfield and things like that there does need to be some kind of regulation but in my time covering cricket i haven't really come across too many situations where it's been a problem well of course you go back to i think in the west indies that england and west indies game that was called off in the first session a few Mm -hmm. years ago but 
Um, Menas, I thought for one, something that came out of this that I thought maybe it was Sir of Ganguly mentioned the pitch in, at Edgebaston, I think it was, in the last Ashes series when we completely capitulated. I mean, so Thanks I guess... Thanks for the reminder. Yeah, I know. I'm, I've tried to forget it too, but I'm guessing... So, I, you know, I'm just trying to think, set up the situation here. So, say the match referee then says, well, this pitch isn't fit for play, or, or Australia have been bowled out for, you know, 50 again or 60 again... What stage did he say it's not fit for play? How, how does it then work? That it, that well, I think that's different to what you're talking about. This is more an after-match assessment. It's not a match referee saying this is a dangerous wicket. It's after the game's finished, you rate the the ground, and if they're not producing great grounds, then eventually they'll take it away. You know, I've, I've got no problem with the way pitches are docked. I wish we did it more. Um, and, of course, it doesn't need to be to the extreme, but I, I don't know. Do, does this... Does it I think solve this is good. any problems. I think this does will solve things, okay. and I think it. You know, you can't have situations we had at Napier where water's getting under the covers. That, it's that's, international. Cricket. That's ridiculous. It's just a one day game, and it's a bit of incompetence from the cricket New Zealand, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. and they've got a track record there as well of uh, of being a problem. So New Zealand. Well, Napier in particular. Just yeah. checking. Yeah, yeah. Hi, Bob. <laughs> uh, now, the final change proposed by the ICC, and this is something I think we might all agree on, is a uniform DRS system. So they're looking at uh, making the technology standard across the whole world for decision review system, and the ICC looking at funding half of that process. And all the technology used has to go through MIT in Boston to make sure it's fit for international cricket. So I think that's great. I love their cricket in Boston, don't they, Menace? <laughs> Come on, mate. It's the centre of the world with ball tracking technology. <laughs> to count, and also they're talking about bringing in the DRS for T20 cricket, uh, international T20 cricket. I think this is a great idea. What do you guys think? I mean, I think we've reached a point now where technology just has to be part of the game. We've come too far. But... <laughs> I think the irony of all this is that India have actually been shown to perhaps have been right about their stance on DRS for quite a while because we still see, especially with the ball tracking and LBW decisions, I think we still see a lot where you sort of scratch your head afterwards. And, you know, I'm not sure how... I mean, we need a uniform system, there's no doubt about that, but I'm not sure how perfect... DRS is at this stage and I think despite everyone uh, you know jumping down India's throats for uh, standing in the way of progress I think maybe on this one occasion they might have actually been correct <laughs> I guess the problem you don't want with T20 is that it slows the game down though don't you because that's such a great thing about T20 that moves so quickly we, you don't want the DRS to slow it down and make it yeah, but turgid. I think T20 cricket's getting so important that you don't want a really bad decision altering the outcome of a match. We saw in the latest T20 series, India v England, a couple of really bad decisions that might have cost England a game. So I don't think you, I think you want to rule that out. And some people say a wicket is more important in Test cricket, and that's true. Perhaps it is, but. I would argue that at points in a T20 game, a wicket can be decisive to the game. So it can almost be just as important. So, Well, well man, as you obviously look at that big bash semi-final between the Scorchers and the Stars where KP blew up, they would have challenged that and he would have been out. Well, I wonder if it'll flow down to the big bash now that eventually we'll see one review per team. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a really tough and a really interesting debate, actually, this one, because in some ways I think DRS draws more attention to... The decisions that are made on the field. I mean, with the Big Bash and the way it's commentated on, the way it's covered, of course there's controversial decisions that are made, but I don't think it's the focus. And it's actually refreshing that even if you get a bad decision like that, very rarely do the commentators harp on about it or is that the focus of 
uh, media reports the next day, which sort of reminds me of sport back in the 90s. In a way, one feeds the other. And I actually don't mind the lack of focus in 2020 cricket on the umpire's decision. Uh, I think that's a good point because I remember last season there was an absolute howler, I think, at the Adelaide Oval in the BBL when the third umpire got the decision wrong and he pressed the wrong button. And I think it was last season, wasn't it? And it, it happened, everyone had a good laugh, it was swept under the carpet. And if that was a sport like rugby league, for example, you wouldn't hear, you'd be hearing about it for the next week. So I think, you know, and it, a lot of that negativity can drag a game down. So I think that's a very valid point, Ben. Mm. Yeah, and I think... I agree with all that, except the stuff about rugby league. Um, but I think standardising... I'm surprised you know what rugby league is, mate. Standardising the technology across the world for cricket is the first step to actually getting this right. And you're back to your point about the Indian stance on DRS. In the end, finally, they're on board now. Mm. And it looks like we'll be using, they'll be using DRS. So they're going to pick it up. Hopefully, it'll continue to eliminate the howlers in cricket. Well, that's all the changes from the ICC. So let's just go through them. I don't think the Test League will get off the ground. I don't think the ODI League will get off the ground. I do think the outfield and ground rating will get off the ground. I do think DRS will get off the ground. So that should be two out of four we get. Yeah, I think the Test Championship will. Uh, I reckon reckon there's enough support for that. But the rest of it, I don't know how that's going to work. I guess the big thing, and I mentioned before, is with this new test system, the top nine test sides are not, none of them are alienated. So you won't have what we had last time where it looked like, say, a Sri Lanka or West Indies might fall into that second tier, and then that would alienate them from the rest of the world. All right. Well, that was the ICC. Now it is time to talk to Ben Horn about his experiences with the Australian cricket team over the summer and talk to him about his opinions on the upcoming tour. Firstly, Ben, let's start off. What is the climate like around covering the the team? Well, it really depends what's happening on the field. I mean, the atmosphere at the start of the summer when things weren't going so well compared to a time when they're flying as a team, um, you can't really compare it. So, you know, as you'd expect, it really just depends on how they're going uh, at the time. Look, to be honest, I think Australia, in the end, handled the whole transition well. Um, they perhaps waited too long to make changes, and that's why we got to that point. But uh, when it became obvious that things needed to be done, I thought they uh, they were pretty proactive. And to come up with guys like Renshaw and Peter Hanscom, that's a pretty good effort to pluck guys from the Shield competition who necessarily didn't have sort of Brad Hodge numbers. Uh, you know, I think that showed a bit of nous to get the right guys in. So, yeah, uh, but in terms of the mood of the team, it, it completely depends on, on how they're travelling. I think we've pointed this out before, but they obviously made four big changes to the side. Two you mentioned, Ben. Mm. The other one was Nick Madison, which was a failure, which was the wrong call. Mm. The other one was Matthew Wade for Peter Neville, and the jury's still very much out on whether that was the right decision. We don't need to go over that, but I'm just saying that they've got two out of four. So, you know, it's kind of, I'm not saying it's tossing a coin, but you make any decision, 50% chance getting it right or wrong. So I'm not prepared to give them a hell of a lot of credit at the moment. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, with Matt Wade, I actually think, you know, it is 50-50 because he didn't score any runs with the bat, still was making the odd mistake with the gloves, but... I didn't mind it. I think uh, their hand was forced to an extent with with needing to make changes and, and mating, making Bradding their priority. So that was their thinking. The, the thing I like about Matt Wade is I think he has matured a bit and I think he's worked well into the leadership structure in the team. He's the same age as Warner and Smith and these guys. 
And when when they've lost as much experience as they had, he's a state captain. And I think he's added something to the atmosphere of the team, if you like. And obviously the jury's still out on the performance side of things, which is just as important. But I think he has added something, even if it's not obvious in the statistics. It's almost an intangible sort of dressing room element that he adds to it. And it's something that I think hard for me to grasp that you would leave someone like Neville out who's scoring runs a better keeper. But I did hear Neville interviewed... Um, recently where he talked about he thinks you know if he performs well with the gloves with the bat the team does well and then then he'll retain his spot which is true but I guess if someone like Matthew Wade's argument is they can do that and add something to the dressing room so go up and pick someone up who's a bit down or help get the boys up on the field when they're a bit flat then that's what the selectors and Lehman and Smith would say that Wade adds to the team that Neville doesn't have that quality. Yeah, I think I was apprehensive about Wade at first because watching him in one-day matches and when he was in Test Cricket in the past, you know, I didn't think some of his uh, antagonising antics on the field necessarily came off. But I think he's toned that down, actually, and I think he's got a more rounded approach to how he plays. Uh, with Pete Neville, I mean, I don't think he's been written off by any any stretch. I mean, Matt Wade's got a back issue at the moment. I mean, who's to say that that won't get worse um, during this Indian series and Pete Neville might be getting a phone call. So I think he's very much Scored still... Scored 100 last week. In yeah, form. still in the frame. He's an excellent cricketer. He is a better keeper. And, um, you know, I don't think he's finished with... And, you know, as good as Matt Wade might have been around the group, at the end of the day, you've got to put performances on the board. So there's no doubt that this Indian series will be a big challenge for him. Well, man, that's what we that's that's what it's come down to though, hasn't it, Ben? That Wade is under a lot of pressure when we go to India, primarily as a keeper. Yeah, I mean last year they went there for a twenty twenty series and didn't take him as a keeper. And I know that was led by Rod Marsh, different selection panel now. But yeah, there's no doubt there's there's been questions about his keeping. Uh, they think he's improved. I'm, I'm prepared to say he probably has, but uh, whether or not it's enough for the, probably the trickiest place in the world to keep, we'll find out. And Neville could probably take a leaf out of Wade's book, and although it's not within his his personality, try and add a few things to his bow, try and be a bit more of a presence in the dressing room and on the field. And although it might not be as natural to him, just maybe that'll help get him back in the team. All right, back a couple more questions, Ben. Firstly, what is the access for, for you with the players like? Uh, are they willing to talk? Do you get a, a lot of time with them or is it very regimented? Um, it's pretty good. I mean, when you compare to other sports that I've covered, I mean, it's, it's certainly as good as most other sports I've experienced. You get a lot more time with them when you're overseas because in Australia there's just so many more people uh, from TV networks and, and everything else that are there covering what's happening. So when you're overseas on tour, you get a lot more time. But, um, yeah, look, I've generally found found them pretty good to deal with. And with some of the players that you deal with, are, are there any that are really good to talk to that you really gel with? Because um, I know some people put up a little barrier when they come to the media. I know Nathan Lyon, for example. I've spoken to him. I've heard him interviewed. He's someone that sort of, I wouldn't say puts up a barrier, but he's not that comfortable talking to the media. Are there others that counter that that are happy to just sit down and have a chat? Yeah, of course. I mean, there's there's lots of great guys to talk to. And, um, you know, I think it's just like in normal life. I mean, some guys are more comfortable talking uh, in public Reverend, than others. The Reverend David Warner. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's he's excellent. You know, always 
uh, talks in depth about things, always very open. So just trying to think off the top of my Kawaja. head. Kawaja? Yeah, outstanding. What about I, some of the new blokes? I'd say is one of the best. I, really? Yeah. He seems I, quite relaxed. Yeah, very smart guy. And um, yeah, I think he's uh, very articulate. Uh, I like Mitchell Stark because he he speaks his mind, um, isn't prepared, isn't sorry, doesn't shy away from giving an opinion. And uh, I think Steve Smith has uh, improved massively as well during the summer. I think that was one thing that came out of uh, I suppose the the crisis that hit Australian cricket, and then what happened afterwards that he really uh, grew in that regard as well. And I think we've seen him talk with a lot of authority about about matters. Do you, so, do, you, do you think he grew from that experience in um, Hobart? That that was kind of rock bottom, wasn't it? And that he really reared up and spat like a cobber, and that was kind of a vital, important point for him as a, growing as a skipper? Oh, I think so, absolutely. And uh, I think we'll probably go back to that moment in years to come. Um, I think it was the moment when, you know, and he was already the captain, we all know that, but I think it was the moment where he really took ownership of the team and... Even though he doesn't make all the decisions to go with the Australian team, there's selectors and a coach and all that kind of thing. I think that was the moment where he just went, this is my team and you know this is how we're going to do things. And I think that was important and a strong message for the team at that time. Well, I think Alan Border said at the time, it's when you start losing that you really feel that because all the losses go against your name and you're responsible for them. So you have to take ownership. With Steve Smith, I really love Steve Smith. I think he's still growing, could be captain for 10 years. No English listeners find that concept horrible, that someone would stay in the job for so long. (laughs) Too patriotic. But what do you think Steve Smith will be like in three years? Where do you think the process of his evolution is going? Um, I mean, as a batsman, I think we're going to see him go down as one of Australia's best. I mean, that probably goes without saying. But at his age, I think he's just turned 27 He's, uh, and with the amount of matches that he's played, just over 50, or 50 exactly, I think, yeah, 50 exactly, you know, he's on track technically to, you know, match a a record like Ricky Ponting, and I mean, obviously that's going to be a huge challenge because he's going to have to keep doing it for a long time, so I mean, no one is saying, oh, he is definitely going to do that, but he's going to score enough runs to go down as one of the, the best batsmen Australia's seen. His captaincy, I mean, that'll be the interesting part. I think he's got it. As a uh, as a leader, and he's really got the team behind him now. But as with all young captains, um, there's probably little things that he'll improve along the way. Um, perhaps once he gets a team that he can rely on regularly, because the one thing about interesting about Steve Smith's captaincy was in a short space of time uh, between when he took over from Michael Clark to now, he's been through more players than Steve uh, War went through in his entire career as captain. So. The turnover of players in his dressing room has been unprecedented. I think in terms of the way he manages the team and and captains them on the field, when he has that real solid base of knowing which players he's got and and what he's going to get out of them, I think we'll see him maybe make some more attacking decisions and and go to another level. Ben, one of his weaknesses, and I think we've been critical of it on the podcast, is that that he struggled probably at times to know how to use Nathan Lyon this summer. Is that a valid criticism do you think and do you think he struggles to sort of I mean, it's obviously something very difficult to, to come to groups with Ricky Ponting obviously struggled at times how to use his spinners is that sort of mm. something that Steve Smith needs to yeah, better I th- understand I think it is a valid criticism um, but the way we saw the summer go on I guess there was a little bit each way as well like Nathan Lyon wasn't in great form um, he was struggling so I guess it was a bit of both, but um, you know I think that's that is probably one area 
of his captaincy where perhaps he, he has room to grow and we saw Michael Clark the way that he was able to just back the spinner and just seem to have a sixth sense for when to play them but um yeah, look, with that, it's a tricky one because we probably didn't see Nathan Lyon in his best form during the summer. I, I think Smith is also a big Stephen O'Keefe fan as well, so it'll be mm. interesting to see how he skippers, skippers O'Keefe. He often brings O'Keefe on before Lyon when they're in the same team. Just back to Smith before we move on. So apart from his cricket, though, this is what I find interesting, is that the leader of the Australian cricket team becomes a very strong personality in Australian life. Alan Border, Steve Waugh, Mark Taylor, Ricky Ponting, the list, Michael Clark, they all become prominent Australians. And I wonder what sort of man Steve Smith will become because at the moment he's all about his cricket and he's very focused on that. But as he grows and matures and has a family, I wonder how that change of personality will sort of come out. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I have no idea. I mean, he's, I think at, at, its, at the crunch of it all, he's a very... Uh, modest pretty laid-back guy so I think I don't think that will change too much he's not really one for the spotlight or, or any of that kind of thing so you know I think he's a pretty reserved character and uh and I'd imagine that would would remain I guess if you look at it and may, want to make a comparison to previous skippers Mark Taylor for me is probably someone who perhaps best compares of, of the current regime or current skippers to Steve Smith I mean Mark Taylor was he didn't really seem to captain with an iron fist, did he? He seemed to do it in a different manner to inspire his men, perhaps. But that's funny because I think that's completely wrong. And if you go back now and you look, I think what you're confusing is Mark Taylor's off-field persona to his on-field persona. From my understanding, Mark Taylor was very much, he called the shots in the team and it was his team. And when Steve Waugh came along, he was very much tried to bring other people into the leadership group. So I think it's more... Uh, Taylor and Smith have off-field similarities where they're quite well, relaxed. Well, I guess, you know, you, you, you when you think of Taylor, you don't really think of any great on-field spats or public spats like AB had with Craig McDermott, for example, and Steve War obviously had a number of spats with opposition players. I, yeah, that's what I was going to get at, man, is that Steve Smith's that sort of relaxed, you know, Tubby's so relaxed off the field. He's, he seems like a likeable guy, the sort of guy you'd want to have a beer with. And I was just saying, make that comparison if you want to walk down the path in 10 years' time, Steve Smith might be like Mark Taylor is. Well, we'll see. Let the future be the judge. Now, the last thing I wanted to ask you before we get on to the Indian tour is we got an email from Dylan Tucker, one of our listeners, and he was asking about the strange treatment of Glenn Maxwell over the summer. What do you think is going on there with Maxie and the way he interacts with the Australian hierarchy? Well, I mean, he's been picked on this test tour, so I imagine things are, are workable. Um, obviously, he's had a difficult summer and um you know the treatment that he had in victoria i think was personally i think it was unfair because you got a guy who's clearly uh one of the best players in the team and uh i just don't think you could really justify leaving him out of that shield team at all so i think that was the starting point um and you know obviously the comments he made about matt wade didn't go down well at all in the australian team and they were dealt with seriously but i think the fact that he's been picked on this tour would suggest that uh, things are okay and also that they think he can still do a, a job for Australia. So I think the waters have smoothed a bit. The fact he's there, I think, you know, shows that he's still got that support. There you go, Dylan. I, I just want to know, though, why can't he voice his opinion about Matthew Wade? What, you know, he's asked a question. We all believe in freedom of speech. Why can't he say that? Why was he punished for making those comments, Ben? 
he is entitled to have his opinion, but I guess when you're part of a team, there's sort of a certain code. And look, as a journalist, the last thing I would ever do is bag someone for having an opinion because that's what we want athletes to do. And Glenn Maxwell is a breath of fresh air that he does speak his mind. He is a unique personality. Uh, And it's debatable whether the fine that he received from the team was fair enough, but I guess it wasn't an official fine. It wasn't a fine from Cricket Australia. It was a fine from the dressing room, and I guess that's a law unto themselves, really. And, um, you know, his comments, whether they were right or wrong, caused a ripple in the team. So in the context of him being a member of the Australian team, I can see why uh, it caused, caused some angst. How it was dealt with is uh, is up for debate because we do live in a free country. <laughs> Now, we're going to have a quick chat about the Indian tour, but before we do that, as I said, Gav Joshi has gone over to Dubai to keep an eye on the training camp, and he was talking to Matt Renshaw, and he started off by asking him what tactics he was working on against the Indian spinners. Have a listen. I think the probably the sweep will be a big one for me, and just trying to stay low and use my reach as, as a tall bloke, I mean... I've got, probably got that advantage over some of the other guys, but they've got some more advantages than me in different parts. Um, how how has the preparations he helped you? Uh, have you sort of you know how, about just batting and playing on this? Can have they helped you in the past seven days? You reckon? Yeah, I think they've been they've been really good. Just trying to work on different plans when we got obviously Graham Hick and Shree here, and just try to replicate what would happen over there and different plans, different tactics. Um, is it probably a good feeling you haven't been to India and haven't been had any scars like losing in Asia? Do, do you think that will help you? Uh, I'm not too sure whether it be the scars, but just a, it's a new experience to me and I love going over to different places and challenging myself and trying to work on different things. And have you been watching any of the Indian uh, bowlers, the spinners' footages, um, just in your room or anything like that? Yeah, I watched a bit of the, the England series and just trying to work out what their spinners were trying to do, but... We forget, seem to forget that they have quick bowlers as well and reverse swing will come a fair bit over there. Welcome back to the Australian Cricket Podcast. That was our Gav Joshi talking to Matt Renshaw. I don't think Matt Renshaw should play in the first test and my feelings were validated when I saw Steve Waugh agrees with me. What do you guys think? Should Matt Renshaw open up? It's a really tough question actually and I can see both sides of it. Wouldn't necessarily bag Australia if they did go Sean Marsh, but I just think about everything that's happened this summer, the regeneration of the team, the realisation that perhaps we'd hung on to guys like Adam Voges and, and, and then, I know he only played one test, but going to guys like Callum Ferguson, there was this realisation that perhaps we needed to go down a different path. We've gone down that path now. I just don't think that you can drop Matt Renshaw when that has become the attitude, and I think they need to take a longer-term view to it. I mean, obviously they want to win this series, but uh, it's a massive challenge to win in India, and I think there does need to be a bit of let's let's look to the future as well. And Matt Renshaw is going to possibly be there the next time they go to India, and Sean Marsh isn't. I agree, but we love putting Sean Marsh in for one test and then dropping him again, and they've got another opportunity to do that. So, man, is they might just do that. Yeah, I'm sticking with Steve Waugh. I think his views are very valid in this argument. Now, uh, Ben, you're heading over to India for the whole Test Series. Are you looking forward to covering it, or four Tests? I am, yeah. I've been to India for 2020 cricket, but never for Test matches, so I'm looking forward to the you know, the excitement and just the differences of cricket over there in India. So it, it'll be a massive challenge for the team. Um, 
it's you know it's going to be a really tough tour for Australia. But I'm sort of buoyed by the changes that they've made, and you know I'm sort of hopeful that they can be competitive. Whether that translates to winning any matches, I don't know because England went okay when they were over there <laughs> and still got belted. So India is a very tough opposition but you know i think australia can in some ways be more competitive than what they've been in the subcontinent recently do you see any major problems with the squad that they've picked not really obviously spin has been a weakness for australia in india in the past even shane warne didn't bowl his best in india but i think that they've gone with the well certainly i like i like three of the bowlers that have gone over there particularly um in line he deserved to be recognized as being the um you know, for his record, I mean, he's had a tough summer, but his experience, I just don't think you could have left him off that tour. Steve O'Keefe has has proven himself as the number two, and uh, and I like Mitchell Swepson's selection in particular. I really, really, think, yeah, you know, and I'm not I'm not saying that he should play the first test, but I think uh, he's a great option to have if things don't go well. That's how I would view Mitchell Swepson's selection because I, you don't want to get to a scenario where uh, God forbid Australia's down 2-0 and we've run out of options to turn to. I think it's good to have uh, an X-factor over there. And uh, Ashton Agar, I'd look at more as, a, as an all-rounder. And, um, you know, I guess the jury's still out on whether, you know, whether he has the batting and bowling up to the level required. But there's no doubt he's a very talented cricketer. And if they're looking to um, stock the middle order with all-rounders, um, he's definitely got a claim to play. What about John Holland or Farwood Ahmed, two really experienced spinners? Shouldn't they have been taken over? With you know, They've got a lot of experience, both of them in the subcontinent. Yeah, look, I wasn't on that Sri Lanka tour last year, so uh, I can't comment completely accurately, but I guess um, John Holland maybe didn't impress them as much as they were looking for, and that's probably the reason why he hasn't gone back again and in terms of Farwood Ahmed um, great record in domestic cricket but uh, when they took him to England last year sorry two years ago for the Ashes I know he didn't play a test match but there was enough to suggest there in the tour games and in training in the nets that perhaps uh, he just was going to struggle with that extra step up so I think it was a considered decision to take Mitchell Swepson. I don't think Farwood Ahmed was probably ever in the frame. If they were going to take anyone else, it might have been Zampa. But uh, I think Swepson was a considered decision. He's played for Australia A. He's gone to India before on um, you know development programs. So it, obviously, if you look at his first-class record, you'd say he's short of the mark. But I don't mind it as a gamble. What about taking three fast bowlers, Bird, Hazelnut and Stark? It seems one short to me, at least. Yeah, look, I think um, you can probably... I guess what they've looked at is Mitchell Marsh is basically an extra quick. And uh, and they're never going to play more than two uh, front-line uh, pacemen in um, India. So I guess if something was to happen injury-wise to one of those guys, they just fly someone in. But uh, at the moment, you know, there's no way that uh, Stark or Hazelwood won't be the two players picked uh, and there's not a lot of other depth around I mean if they're not considering Pat Cummins or James Pattinson I'm struggling to think of another quick that they could have taken so I think I think they thought maybe maybe in the past they've left themselves a spinner short in terms of options and that's where they'll need to really go to the bench and um, and use their full complement. And where are you on this argument of does Australia look to win with pace or do we look to win with spin on the subcontinent? I think that the pace bowlers do need to play an important role. Uh, I'd probably play Stark, Hazelwood and Mitchell Marsh in my 11 um, because I think they're all 
test class bowlers. And who, then would you have Lyon and O'Keefe as your yeah. spinners? Yeah, to start with. And then obviously if things change in the first couple of test matches, you'd look at a couple of changes. But I think they've got to back their strengths. And Mitchell Stark was outstanding in Sri Lanka last year. And uh, if yeah, if Australia's going to win in India, Mitchell Stark will basically be man of the series, I think. Well, Stark is the one who has to be unplayable. He gives us something that the Indians aren't accustomed to, does he? Well, it? he can just get wickets with the old ball. Yeah. I and mean, if he gets it reverse swinging, then he can knock over Kohli and Pujara and Rahani. I mean, they're looking so good, India. It's going to be tough. So, Ben, I guess I'll just lock you into prediction while I've got you. You said you're not confident about Australia. What would be a success for Australia? Is a 2-1 loss, would that considered to be a successful tour? I think it would, in a way. Um, I mean, it's hard to really pluck a figure out of the out of the air, but... Generally. <clears throat> yeah, I think if they... But an exact figure. If they compete, that's what, Australia, that's, you know, that's what Australia will be looking for as a team because I think it's just important um, to not fall apart on this tour. Uh, we saw last time they went there, things just completely capitulated. Everything went out the window. And, um, was that homework gate? Yeah. Yeah. And I know that was probably an exceptional circumstance, but I just no think... No Mickey Arthur or Shane Watson <laughs> or Michael Clark over there. They've got a team now that they've uh, put together through the summer. There's an Ashes next summer. Uh, I think they've picked a lot of the right guys. So I think the important thing over there is to get competitive performances and be able to keep the bulk of that team together and not panic. I think panic would be the worst thing for Australia over there because it could then jeopardise the rest of the year to come and potentially the next couple of years. What about Australia going into the series as the underdog? I think that in some ways gives us a slight leg up. We usually go in as the the clear favourites whenever we play a test series. This one is... we're going in as the rank underdog. So if we do scrape a win or just put up some good performances, then we can give them a pretty good pass mark, which is unusual. Yeah, I think it has. I think what's happened this summer has taken a lot of pressure off the team going over there. I mean, I think if they'd, if they'd wiped uh, South Africa and Pakistan, charging form going over to India, I think, you know, in some ways expectations would have perhaps proven too much but I do I, I do agree I think I think they might be able to fly under the radar a bit and there's less pressure on some of these guys I just don't know how how we're going to deal with Coley I mean he's got another hundred in this test now I just I just can't see us combating him yeah could agree. be a lot of uh, chasing of leather <laughs> on the outfield could be some Fair long enough. hot days for you over there Ben in India yeah man I just want to ask Ben like you know I think it's something that listeners will be interested in you know you talk about the team the cricket team there's also behind the scenes of course the reporters and journalists who are working on the tour what's it like for you guys you're obviously a team yourselves but you're still rivals and you know I guess you have to make sure things don't fall apart that you don't get sick that you don't miss the story that you know that no you don't jelly belly that you don't panic I mean what's it like can you tell the listeners a bit about what's it it's a long tour obviously you're away from your family like the cricketers what's it like for you as the tour rolls on um it is a very tight-knit group the cricket riding uh, fraternity simply because like you say you spend all this time away together and it would make life pretty difficult if you if you didn't so yeah I've always found it like that since I started doing it and um and it's a tricky balance, I suppose, because as you say, you are in competition with each other. But on a day-to-day basis, I mean, you're better off working together in terms of, I suppose, getting yourself around and uh, and just general logistics and things like that. So it's uh, it is very social and it's very um, yeah, there's, there is camaraderie there amongst the journo's. But uh, as you uh, touched on, Andrew, 
Delhi Belly is concerning for me because last time I went to India, nothing happened to me. I was a hundred percent fine, <laughs> and I don't like uh, the uh, the odds of going there twice and coming back unscathed. <laughs> what about any other writers? Is there any other writer that you really enjoy their writing or sort of look up to or try and emulate? Any ins- people that inspire you? Uh, I suppose uh, you know, and he works for my organisation, but uh, Robert Craddock is. I love his writing and I love his take on sport and just uh, his ability to sort of bring it all to life and, um, you know, and also um, call a spade a spade as, as well. So I think he's he's one of the best. Look, to be honest, I think you just look at the guys who are doing it at the time and, um, you know, you just want to be someone, I suppose, who calls it straight and, um, and you know, is fair as well. So, um, you know, I wouldn't say there's sort of one anyone that I've really looked to, but you do feed a lot off the people that you're working with at the time. And I've I've worked with some great journo's uh, since I've Matter. started this job. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, but um, yeah, the support of your colleagues is important because you sort of keep each other in check and you read other people's stories. And you know, it's a it's a really great filter for for doing your job. Well, listeners, we're running out of time, but before we go, I wanted to go through the Have A Go Your Mug mug promotion. Now, there's been no new entries this week, but if you can go onto iTunes and leave a review for the show, you will go in the draw for a Have A Go Your Mug mug. Please email me when you've left a review for the show so I can uh, check it and see that it's there because I only see the Australian iTunes reviews. And also, if you want to get a mug straight away, you can go on the Patreon site and sign up to the show for $5 a month or more and you will get a mug straight away. So if you can do that, that would be great. If you've got time, please go and vote on the Castaway Awards for the Australian Cricket Podcast. Ben, you're about to get your mug. Don't worry, I haven't forgotten you. Every (laughs) panellist gets a mug. Thanks for coming on the show, Ben. It's been great to have you on. We've run out of time. We're not going to be able to talk about the impending T20 series. But one quick question. The coaching staff is Langer, Ponting and Gillespie. Are these three coaches of the Australian T20 side in a three-way tussle for Booth's job when he retires? I guess so. I mean, it's um, they would love Ricky Ponting to <laughs> put his hand up as a coach. I think the problem with Ricky is he's so busy with other areas. For him to give that full-time commitment to coaching at this stage seems unlikely, but who knows in two or three years' time where he might be at. I think Justin Lang is the standout for mine. I mean, he's got a great record. Really like the way he goes about it. And, um, you know, I think when the time comes, he'd be a good fit. Well, there we go. Macca, thanks for joining me on the Australian thanks Cricket Podcast this week. Thanks for having me, Manners. And great to see you, Benny. As yeah, always, ben, thanks for having us. Ben, thanks a lot for coming along. Have a great trip in India. Good luck over there. Stay clear of uh, some all the dodgy food. And uh, we'll be watching. Thanks, boys. Appreciate you having me. And listeners, thanks again for downloading the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm going to leave you this week with Gav Joshi putting the tough questions to Nathan Lyon and Pete Hanscom in Dubai, who, to be fair, didn't have many answers. Um, reverse swing's going to play a big role. There's been talk in the past where, you know, you've got the sweaty hands and not been able to... <laughs> Can you actually do anything about that? Or um, Unless it's cold. Um, I'm not <laughs> really sure what we're going to do. But, uh, no, we've, we've come up with a few different areas like that, but uh, it's just part of the game that we're going to have to deal with. It's going to be hot over in India. Uh, we're just going to have to adapt to whatever conditions are thrown our way and really compete hard with India. Um, what's the biggest difference about playing spin bowling in India compared to Australia? Uh, well, I, I guess it just turns more, mate. Um, and it, it's it's unpredictable turn. Uh, you know, from the middle of the wicket, it can go uh, relatively straight by the looks of it. Uh, but out of the footmarks or, or even just wide of the wide of the centre of the wicket, 
uh, it can really spin um, and quite aggressively. So uh, it'll just be um, trusting our defence and, and seeing how we go. A lot of balls seem to skid on and a lot of batsmen seem to get trapped LBW in front of the wickets for Jadeja and happen in Sri Lanka. Um, how do you sort of combat that? I don't know, mate. I guess um, you know, some, of the, some of the world's best batters don't know how to do that, so I don't know exactly how I'm going to do it. Um, I've got a few game plans in my head and uh, you know, hopefully they work for me, but I won't know until I get out there. What a marvellous stroke. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of this series.